Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Last week we talked about repentance and we talked about um, this revival that happened, um, you know, in the early 1900s in North Korea. And today I wanted to dive into that a little bit. And there's this pastor over there. His name was Paul Youngji Cho. And he's the pastor of one of the largest churches in the world, actually. And several years ago, when his ministry was expanding and becoming international, he said this to God. He prayed to God. He said, I'll go anywhere to preach the gospel except Japan. I'll go anywhere except Japan. He hated the Japanese with gut-deep loathing because of what the Japanese troops had done to the Korean people throughout the span of World War II. Young Ji Cho's own family were treated terribly. And so the Japanese were Young Ji Cho's Ninevites. And he prayed this to, uh, to God, and through a combination of prolonged inner struggle and direct challenges from others, and finally an urgent and starkly worded co- uh, invitation, Cho felt called by God to preach in Japan. Wouldn't you know it? Be careful what you pray for. He went, and he went and went with some bitterness still lingering in his heart. And the first speaking engagement that Cho had was at a pastor's conference in front of like 2,000 pastors, Japanese pastors. And Cho stood up to speak, and what came out of his mouth was this. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And then he broke down, and he wept. He was both brimming and desolate with hatred. At first one, then two, and then all 2,000 pastors stood up. And one by one, they walked up to Cho. They knelt at his feet and asked forgiveness for what they and their people had done to him and his people. And this went on, and God changed young Ji Cho. He changed this pastor that bitterly hated this whole group of other people. And the Lord put a single message in his heart and his mouth. And do you know what that message was? I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Sometimes God calls us to do what we least want to do in order to reveal our heart, to reveal what's really in our hearts. How powerful is the blood of Christ? Can it heal hatred between Koreans and Japanese people? Can it make a Jew love a Ninevite? Can it make you reconciled to, well, you know who you're thinking of right now. Jonah ends in a cliffhanger, and he's still not learning this lesson that God wants him to learn. So we're going to work through the last chapter of Jonah and ask God to change our hearts toward what we think about him and what we think about the Ninevites in our lives. Because we all have them, if we're honest with one another. For you, who is your Ninevite? Can we walk away today becoming more like Jesus and a little less like Jonah? That's like the simple question before all of us. As we conclude the series, can we walk away becoming more like Jesus and a little less 
like Jonah. So let's read it. We got 11 verses to work through this morning. And in chapter 4 of Jonah, we read this. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Stop. Before we read verse 10, we've got to go back to chapter 3, verse 2. We've got to go back to chapter 3, verse 10. And we read that. When God saw what they did and how they turned the Ninevites from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That this is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter or a sukkah. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine or a gourd or plant, leafy plant, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, a red one, in fact, according to the Hebrew, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, again, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Cliffhanger, what happens next? Then we don't hear about Jonah until Jesus brings him up in Matthew. When Jesus says, the men and women of Nineveh, those who repented, will stand up at the judgment and condemn those in the current generation, the wickedness and adulterous nature of this generation, because they humbled themselves and repented, and now one greater than Jonah is here, he's talking about himself, and y'all still won't repent. You still won't turn to God. And that's the last time we hear about Jonah. Let's talk about authorship for a little bit. Well, how do we receive this narrative of this rebellious prophet? No one really knows the answer to that question. Well, Jesus does when he talks about Jonah and Matthew, but no one really knows. Some people picture, some theologians picture an old withered Jonah, you know, in his old age. Maybe he's learned a few lessons from experience. 
Maybe he's writing this about himself. It makes sense that God's worked on him through the span of his life, and then he comes to the end of his life, and he pens this story about his own life, and he says, look how um, ridiculous I was back then. Other scholars say maybe someone from Nineveh, maybe, maybe Jonah gained a couple followers or something, and, and they came along with him through his journey, and, and he, um, he penned that journey through the, the witness uh, the eyewitness testimony of, um, of one of the Ninevites, you know? No one really knows. But what we do know is that we're left with a big matzo ball hanging out there. What is going on? What's going to happen with Jonah? God's calling Jonah to put his word, here in f- chapter 4, to put his word in the spiritual good of people ahead of Israel's interests, and Jonah is still unwilling to do it and to see it like God sees it. You see here in the narrative that Jonah weeps over plants. He weeps over plants, but God has compassion for people. God's saying like, why are you crying over plants? I'm weeping over people. God feels this compassion for the Ninevites. And God feels this compassion for you and for me. Isn't that amazing to think that God feels compassion over you and I? Over people like you and I? That he actually, we read in scripture, not just here in Jonah, but many other places. That God weeps over you and I. And how many of you know that feeling this way, when you feel this way, compassion for someone else, that it makes you vulnerable to suffering? We start to see the cross work itself into the book of Jonah. God makes himself vulnerable to suffering as the divine being, the creator of all. To have compassion on people like you and me and the Ninevites and Jonah makes himself vulnerable to suffering. And that's where we see Jesus hit the scene as an expression of the Father's compassion for you and for me. And and God is saying, Jonah, you're weeping over plants. I have compassion for people. When people hurt, he hurts. You know, Jesus weeps we're told, in many places in the gospel. One of those places is in Luke 19. Jesus weeps over the city. Jonah weeps over plants. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon one another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not know the right from their left, Jonah says about the Ninevites. Jesus says it here about the people of Jerusalem. Jonah weeps over plants. God has compassion for people. Jesus does it. Again, uh, God saying in Jonah, these people who don't know the right from their left is reminiscent of Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And they divided up clothes and cast lots. You know, God sends difficult things, not just speeches, to liberate Jonah from his self-righteousness, his identity rooted in self-righteousness. God is doing spiritual surgery on Jonah's heart to rid him of idols. And that's what chapter 4 is all about as we conclude the series. That's the big picture. Okay, so let's dive in uh, deeper. We'll do some of the heavy lifting first, and then we'll just end with transformation. So what's Jonah's problem? Jonah's upset. The Hebrew here for Jonah's angry, but Jonah was greatly uh, displeased and became angry is a mild translation of what the Hebrew words mean. This word for anger in the Hebrew is similar to, it, it would rather be read, Jonah was extremely upset and burned with heat anger. Have you ever burned with heat anger? Jonah burned with heat anger. Why is he so upset? And what what is he upset over? Well, here's the exposing of Jonah's heart. Jonah's upset because God is gracious. Have you ever been upset because God is gracious? Jonah's upset because God is a gracious God. It would be like this. It would be like, do you remember the huge Billy Graham crusades of like the 70s, 80s, and 90s? And hundreds of thousands of people would go to see Billy Graham preach the gospel. And then at the end of the, uh, of the talk, he would invite folks forward to receive Christ. And, and if you were there, you saw it. You may have even come down at a Billy Graham crusade to receive Christ. And he gives the word and he says, okay, come down. And then there's a flood of people. It would be like if at a Billy Graham crusade, 120,000 people come to repent and give their lives to Christ. And Jonah is heat angry. God, why do you have to be so gracious? You know, Billy, can you imagine Billy Graham standing up there and saying, why are you forgiving these people's sins? 120,000? They don't deserve to have their sins forgiven after he had just preached repentance. Billy Graham saying, ah, you're too merciful, God. Why are you that merciful with these people? Does it make any sense? Jonah's heat mad at God, that God is gracious. Ugh, why do they have to come to know Jesus? Ugh, you know that kind of, ugh, ugh, these people, ugh. You know, <laughs> you know. Ro- what? So the question here is what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Romans 9, 15, Paul writes this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jonah, it's not really up to you. We were driving in this morning and we drive past a couple of churches on the, on the way 
from, from Brunswick into Parma Heights. And my, uh, my parents are here this weekend. Love you guys. Welcome to Cleveland. Grandparents Day. And as we're passing these churches, we pass like a Baptist church and then we pass like a Pentecostal church. And my mom <laughs> turns to me and, and we pass the Baptist church. I say, yeah, that's a Baptist church over there. And she says, are they getting in? Do they get in? And I was like, it's not really up to me, mom. And then, and then we pass the, the Pentecostal church, the charismatic church, and, and my mom goes, well, are they getting in? I'm like, where? She's like, you know, heaven. I'm like, I don't know. It's not really up to me, mom. Romans 9, 15 in action. It's not really up to us. Thanks for that sermon illustration, mom. I'm grateful to you for birth and for sermon illustrations. It's wonderful. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the key question from God here in this celebrity death match between Jonah and God is repeated three times in 11 verses. It's right there in verse 4 and verse 9 and verse 11. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And then ending the, ending the book, should I not be concerned about that great city? That's a pretty important question if it's coming from the Lord and it's coming three times. And God asks him this question, do you have any right? Implying that Jonah still hasn't picked up the lesson that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and have compassion on whom he has compassion. Why? Well, quite simply put, he can't help it. God can't help it. It's part of his character. It's not, his compassion isn't separate from his character. It's a part of who God is. He showed, he he shows compassion because he is God. It's, it's intertwined with his identity. And Jonah quotes from Exodus, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, because the Lord passes before Moses and shows Moses who he is and tells Moses who he is. He says, I'm the great, I am who I am. He's the great I am. And, and the pieces of his character that are so uh, intrinsic to who he is, he, we read in Exodus, Moses writes, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord. Great in compassion, abounding in love. You know, these big things of who God is. He can't help but be compassionate towards people like you and me and towards people like the Ninevites, those other people over there. He just can't help it. He has to show compassion. He has to express compassion. And Jonah has a real problem with that. <laughs> and sometimes so do we. Okay, so let's talk about the, the, the worm, the plant, and the wind. The worm, the plant, and the wind. As we work through the passage, there's this symmetry that we see in the passage, and there's hyperlinks everywhere. 
to the Old Testament and different stories that are happening um, within templates. And we see that Jonah goes outside of the city and he builds this tent or the sukkah, which is, um, is reminiscent of the festival of Sukkot, where one of the main, one of the, get this, here's the irony and the paradox of the book of Jonah. One of the main highlights, hallmarks of the Feast of Tabernacles and Sukkot is that they build a, a tent outside the city and they live there, they eat there. And one of the main hallmarks is to celebrate and be kind to the immigrant, to the foreigner, and the orphan. Jonah builds a tent, a sukkah, and the only time he's happy is when God provides a shade tree for him. Not for other people, but for him, to keep him cool from the sun. He's like, yes, thank you. I'm relieved. And the whole point of the Feast of Tabernacles and the sukkah is to celebrate that foreigners get in on this as well. And the irony there that Jonah, of all people, is building one of these, as he's probably commanded to do, if it were that time, he celebrates the plant, providing him shade. Not that God has mercy on the Ninevites. That's important. We also see a pattern here in the book of Genesis, way back to the book of Genesis. As Jonah is um, building this tent and as he is burning with heat anger, we've heard this word before, Jews would say as they read through the narrative of Jonah. And we should read uh, today when we read through the narrative of Jonah. We've heard this word before. He burns with heat anger. Where have we heard it before? Well, it's after Cain and Abel make sacrifices before the Lord. And we read in Genesis 4 that Cain is not, so, is not feeling so good about himself. In fact, he's feeling the same heat anger towards his brother. And God asks Cain the same question that he asks Jonah. He asks Cain, is it right for you to feel this way? To feel heat mad at your brother? After all, didn't he require to bring the first sacrifices? And you're, wouldn't, wouldn't you feel better about yourself if you did the right thing before? If you did what was acceptable, wouldn't you not feel heat mad? And it's the same template that we see in Jonah. Cain, where does he go? He leaves east of Eden. He goes outside east of of Eden, outside of the blessing, he specifically travels east. Where does Jonah go? He goes east of the city, outside, and he builds a tent. Almost as a mockery to the blessing of what the Garden of Eden was for men and women. And so there's hyperlinks all over the place. He builds this shelter, he builds this tent, and, and the only time that Jonah is happy in the whole narrative is when he's got shade over his own head. It's the only time. Every other phrase is like, Jonah's mad. Jonah wants to die. Jonah's upset. He feels like a four on the Enneagram. He's really like, heart. I feel this. I feel this way. And so it is, you know. He's very much um, displeased here in the NIV. He's heat mad. But only once is he happy. Is he rejoicing? And that's when the shade tree is over his own head. And then God provides a worm. God provides a worm. God also provides an east wind. And this is a structure through the whole book. He provides a great storm. He provides a great fish. 
He provides a shade tree. He provides a worm. He provides an east wind. All of these things are to draw our attention to the main point, which is that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And for the last time through the series, can we say it all together? Jonah's, it's not really about the fish. Ready? One, two, three. It's not really about the fish. But it's about these vehicles that God uses to draw Jonah's heart back into relationship with himself. To see the bigger picture of loving the people that God loves. Of showing kindness to the people God wants to show kindness to. And ultimately, about Jonah's heart, that God feels that way about him too. You know, it's not really about the fish. So he's happy about the, the shade tree. The, the worm is provided and it eats the shade tree completely. It's a gourd plant or it's a castor oil tree. And um, it grows quickly and God appoints it to grow. And then he appoints the worm to eat it. And God sends these difficult things, not just speeches, to liberate Jonah's heart. You know, he's giving him real life object lessons that hurt in order to draw him back to himself. And sometimes God does that with us too. He sends us real life object lessons that hurt but have the greater good in mind that ultimately he knows best for us. And no matter what circumstance that he puts us in, we can count as we follow Jesus that he's using that circumstance to draw us into closer relationship with himself. Many of you guys know uh, John Newton. John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And before John Newton uh, came to know Jesus, John Newton was a slave trader in occupation. So it was his job to run the ships that ran slaves to and from the new world. And John Newton was really good at being a slave trader until he met Jesus. And he penned that hymn. But there's another hymn that John Newton wrote, which I think is just as powerful, but never gets sung. And when you know that that hymn that John Newton wrote was about Jonah chapter 4. And as we close this morning with a, with a, with a few, okay, few more minutes, I want us to hear the words of this hymn that John Newton, a former slave trader, penned. Remember, not amazing grace. Listen to this. This is the goods right here. Here's John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation I know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. 
Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Cross all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. There he's talking about the plant. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in the way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Everything to Jesus. These things in our lives, the worm, the shade tree, and the belly of the fish are all designed by God to draw us closer to him in communion with him, that there be no separation between us, that we'd find our all in all in the person of Jesus, beholding him alone, finding no other joy or pleasure on the face of the earth, more captivating than the presence of Jesus in our hearts and our lives, that we would find it a joy to show kindness to other people because we've experienced that same kindness in our hearts, that that same vast mercy, the endless ocean of mercy that God uh, has in and of himself, the infinite mercy that God possesses as part of his character, that we have experienced that, that yet we were dead in our sins. Christ died for us. And because of Christ's death and his resurrection from the grave, that that kindness now spills out of our lives and onto the lives of our co-workers, our families, our city, our nation, our world so that the, the, the surface of the earth would be covered with the knowledge and the glory of God forever and forever. That endless kindness that God has shown to us, we would show to other people. And that's what John Newton is saying here. When we find our all in all in the person of Jesus, that his blessing shines on us there, that we are set free to live to the fullest. And share his kindness with other people. That's why Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here now and you don't know it. You see, Jonah went uh, from his post in Israel to Tarshish to flee away from the will of God. Jesus went from heaven to earth to accomplish the will of God. Jonah was thrown overboard and sacrificed to calm a raging storm. Jesus was thrown on a cross and sacrificed to cure our sin. Jonah went outside the city to witness the destruction of Nineveh. Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish salvation. Jonah was called to preach to a people who hated him, but would eventually repent. Jesus was called to preach to a people who hated him and would eventually put nails through his hands. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights because of his disobedience. Jesus was laid in the belly of the earth because of our disobedience. The fish spit Jonah out after three days to give him a second chance. The grave spit the Son of God out to give you and I a second chance. That's good news. Hey, good on you, pastor. You preached the gospel. The Son of God came out of the grave to set us free from sin and death once and forevermore. Amen.
The theologian Dumelow wrote this, For there is no finer close in literature than the ending of Jonah chapter 4. The divine question, remember that big matzo ball I said was hanging out there? The divine question, should not I have pity? Should not I have pity remains unanswered. It remains unanswered. Its echoes are heard still above every crowded haunt of men and women. Above the stir and din and wickedness, the infinite compassion of Jesus is brooding still. Should I not have compassion? Should I not have compassion? Compassion. 